What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast, number 22 today, Gianni. I'm not even going to name an athlete that wore jersey number 22 because we failed last week, so that game's over. But uh, And I still apologize for telling you Ray Allen didn't wear 20 when he does wear 20. Thank you. I appreciate the apology. It was embarrassing. Um, but today, bro, I'm selfish about this guest because beyond the fact that he fits the mold of our type of guest, I could honestly talk to him for four hours straight about what he's created and the characters and what he's created. But we'll save that for the pod and it won't be four hours, I promise everybody. Um, but on today's show, we have writer, producer, director, and some other crazy things I learned about him, which we'll talk about. So uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Brian Koppelman. Brian, how are you, bro? Dude, it's such my pleasure to be here with both of you. This is, uh, I'm so psyched. I can't believe you had Kyrios on. <laughs> I find Kyrgios one of the most fascinating people. You know, I'm a tennis freak, and I'm so fascinated by that dude's level of talent and the complex moral code that he has and uh, his self-destructiveness and also his ability to play. I, I found that fascinating. I could have listened to you guys talk for a long time, I, and it's a perfect thing that you're doing this show because, like, you've got to be the only person who could get Kyrgios to come on and just kind of talk without really protecting himself it's great stuff thank you man yeah i actually i was like oddly nervous before that because I get it i'm a tennis fan but i i don't i couldn't go in the weeds on like the nick curios tennis world but it was pretty amazing to see how deep he got with gianni and i like i was really impressed by it yeah like i could go deep into the weeds with him but it's really the emotional stuff and who he is and his makeup and everything yeah fascinating so i love that you guys got him to to talk on the show it's great that you got him to talk thank you man um and and he represents kind of the wide variety of guests we've had and that's what the the idea of the show was was that like i've been fortunate enough to go to dinners to meetings and like when i came and met with you yeah. at K kd for the first time and i find myself just you know becoming a kid in every meeting i'm in and asking a million questions no so matter fun. what i agree what, I the same you know thing. no matter what age they are so um with nick it was like i'm talking to this polarizing athlete um, and what a gift to be able to talk to him and understand what makes him tick. And then similarly with you and so many of the, uh, similarities at childhood I've found to be remarkable, you know, like what it was that Kevin turned on in himself as a kid, similar to what maybe Jesse Itzler turned on in himself as a kid, you know, um, Jesse Itzler though, grew up in Roslyn, same time and same place you grew up. Were you guys friends as kids? Jesse and I know each other for a really long time. Yeah. We, we didn't go to the same high school and I think he's, um, a couple years younger than I am. He knew my sisters, but, uh, I think Jesse and I first met in our early twenties and he definitely knew my sisters and, um, he's a, Jesse's a, a remarkable, uh, the thing he's turned himself into is remarkable, man. Yeah. yeah. So what I said to him was, though, growing up in Roslyn and he told me that I was right in this, you know, his parents expected him at that point that was in the 80s to be a doctor or, you know, to be a lawyer. Um, and he was quite the opposite. And it was challenging for you. Your father was in the music business. But was your career something that you thought about as a kid? Were you focused in school? Were you one of those dreamers? I love talking about this. I will say I was hyper-focused on what I wanted to do with my life. It, it's not what I am doing with my life now, but 
I was a terrible student. I had really bad ADHD, but at the time I was growing up, I'm 54 years old. So, you know, late seventies, early eighties, there really wasn't any, what, what we would now call scaffolding for people who had the kind of ADHD I did. So I was the person who would be told how smart I was, but how lazy I was at school or how um, irascible I was or how difficult uh, it was to sort of get me to focus or do my work. I'm the kind of person who I was at college. I had seven incompletes my final semester of college. But when I was interested, and it was very painful, Rich, you know, um, being in seventh or eighth grade and being unable to do well, though being a voracious reader, you know, I, I read every book, I memorized them, I would watch movies and memorize all the dialogue, but I was terrible at school. And the disconnect caused a tremendous amount of pain for me, uh, especially because, you know, you can't help but buy into some of the narrative about yourself, which is if I can't get it together to learn and focus on geometry, if I'm pulling an F in geometry, that, that means something about how hard I'll work in life. And you, you turn on yourself, or I did in certain ways, but I was always producing records. I was promoting concerts. I was making connections with grownups who were in industries I was fascinated uh, with. And I talked myself into a good college because accidentally, unlike the kids now who plan, I was like producing records. And like I had like a whole portfolio of shit I'd done while I was getting bad grades and I got deferred from my first choice college, but I was so used to hustling that like I was writing the woman admissions person letters. I was like driving up to Tufts to talk to her. I was just like treating it like business, even though I didn't know anything about that. There was no college counselor telling me to do that. Um, and so I was able to like, basically the promise I'd made to this woman was like, I don't know how, but if I get into this school, I'll somehow bring credit to the place. Like I'll be a good person be bumping around here. And then I did, you know, that's when I discovered Tracy and like uh, was able to do this thing that ended up being useful for the university and me and, and, and luckily enough, you know, th the world. And so like I, I, I was always someone who chased what I was curious about, Rich. It's sort of like the key to any success I, I might've had, which is if I'm curious and fascinated, obsessed, I've now learned to recognize those um, signals as worth following. And if I do, I tend to find a way to make that stuff um, make me feel more alive. And if it does, I end up doing something useful with it. And so I, because my dad was a businessman in the record business, I didn't think it was okay to be an artist. He was the person who would kind of translate the artist's vision. I mean, much like what you do. And I didn't think I was um, able, someone like me, I was never selected or picked out as special. I, I don't want to like lie. Like I knew I was a smart person. I knew I had a vocabulary that was different than most people's. I knew I knew how to connect in certain ways, but I was never told, hey, you're a talented person or you should be. Uh, my parents were great about it, but by any authority figure. So I thought I had to be like the business person who would help creative people but at some point that got too painful for me and I realized, no, I have to take the risk of actually becoming the artist. So that's a long way around to say I did, I was incredibly focused as a kid on what I wanted to be, but it turned out to be something different than I became. Well, by the way, nobody 
who's like you, and I, what I mean by that is like this eccentric mind who has become incredibly successful, will ever answer that first question in a short answer because the answer in their own mind is so much more intricate, and it is because of all the thoughts that it ran through your mind instantly. I'm amazed that you went to school. I think it probably has a lot to do with the generation because now if somebody is selling and manage selling records managing bands in high school their probably instinct is like I'm done, you know I'm good I'm not going to college but you were able to go to school and finish school have that entrepreneurial gene and the Tracy you mentioned Gianni if you were wondering or if the listeners are wondering is Tracy Chapman so you discovered Tracy Chapman in the music business I saw you worked with Eddie Murphy Similar to me, I worked in the music business, and when I say the names that I work with now, Solange, Mark Ronson, Meek Mill, I mean, these are superstars. When I was working with them, they were coming up on stardom. Um, But where did the music business live in your life? Well, I'm a music fanatic, you know, and and still, right, I'm obsessed with music. Dave and I pick all the music for billions, and um, I write songs, and I'm, I'm, that's still a big part of my life. Look, my dad, it was great. I had this childhood where we were not in show business, meaning we lived on Long Island. Uh, We didn't do any sort of Hollywood stuff, except my father exposed me to the recording studio. So he would take me with him all the time to the recording studio. And so I got to be in sessions from when I was like seven years old. He would basically say like, don't talk unless you're spoken to. Sit Sit in the back. And you know, when musicians were on breaks, I would talk to the bass player. I would talk to the drummer. I would hang out with the engineer. And so I like, I got this incredible education about what it was to talk to creative people. Like, you know, when you watch a producer get a lead vocal, Rich, or out of somebody, it's an amazing thing. And it's so similar to what it is to talk to an actor, right? And so I would watch um, uh, an insecure lead vocalist who wasn't able to hit the notes or wasn't able to communicate what the meaning of the song was in the right way. And I would watch either my pop or a producer of the session or an arranger, or if that singer had a particular relationship with the guitar player, I would watch the way that they could communicate with the singer so that by the end of the session, the singer would be so inside herself or himself and so full of confidence, and they would be able to put the song across in an incredible way. And then, you know, I got to watch the singer would leave and people would go, holy fuck, she was still flat on four of the lines. And I would, this is before autotune, so I would watch them comp the vocals. And you know, when you live, and then I would see the, what the end result of comping the vocals, you know, I would watch the way that they would have uh, 64 uh, tracks or, you know, 248 track machines and they would sync all that stuff up and bounce tracks around. And I mean, when you watched all that, the kind of process of that becomes fascinating to you. and um, and I loved songs. My dad was a publisher first, so we would listen to songs and that taught me to appreciate great writing. And I think I would have gone to school regardless because I love to read so much and I love to write so much. And that was what I thought I would get out of school. I was like, well, I'll be able to like really spend time reading books in a way. That's the great privilege of going to school without debt, right? I, that, that's the biggest advantage like that your kids will have, Rich, is whether they're able to get scholarships because they play sports or not, you'll be able to send your kids to college without debt, which is like a game-changing thing. It allows you to be a young person and dream when you get out of college. Whereas most people have debt, they have to fucking pay off. 
I had no debt when I got out of college, which gave me just such an amazing leg up in the world to find my way, you know? So when you got out of college, was it just right into music business? Okay. I mean, I had, there's such a huge, I mean, I didn't like, like because of making Tracy's album while I was at college, I didn't make Eddie Murphy's record. What I did was I connected Eddie with my pop. I was in um, high school and saw him at a local club and he had just gotten SNL. He was a featured player and I just was like, woke my dad in the middle of the night and was like, you gotta, this guy needs to make comedy records, like a rock star, but he's a comedian. So I put them together and that was great for my family, but my only involvement with Eddie was sometimes he and I would have fake karate fights. But uh, when we were young. <laughs> That's so epic. Amazing to me. So epic. You've no idea. The greatest thing ever. Is this party all the time, Eddie Murphy? Yeah, my dad made that record with Eddie. Yeah. Fire. But it was the comedian. It was comedian. It was those three records. Eddie Murphy, comedian, and then whatever the third record Delirious was. Delirious or Raw? Yeah. Those, that period of time. Like Delirious. I was at yeah. the Delirious um, concerts when he was touring it and stuff. But I didn't have any involvement other than Eddie knew that like I put him together with my dad. I was like 16, 17, 18. So I was very young. You know what I mean? I was yeah. very young. Uh, but, but Rich, I came out of college and I had this great bit of luck. I mean, it was amazing because when we were working with Tracy, like everybody passed. So I got these incredible lessons. And this is what I always, I love to talk about this too, because if someone's listening to this and they're listening to you talk about this stuff, they want to hustle. They want to accomplish stuff. And like right in early age, uh, you know, I, I saw Tracy playing. I realized how incredible she was. I realized the gift she had. Um, and uh, all these like professional A&R people come up. Those are the talent scouts of the record. They all passed on her. And I got to live that experience of knowing she was great. It wasn't my art. So I wasn't so connected to it that it was like, I didn't have any insecurity about it, which you have when it's your own thing but I just objectively knew how great she was. And I saw these people looking at it through this prism of knowing what their bosses would say. So they were looking at a black, um, you know, masculine seeming woman. Uh, she wasn't, I never, I don't know what her sexuality is. I don't think she's ever publicly said, but they made assumptions about that. At that time, a black woman with an acoustic guitar singing that kind of song was just not on the radio. There were like all these issues with it, but I had no professional I didn't have to answer to anybody. All I had to do was like look through my eyes and ears and as an emotional person receive what she was doing. So I would look at them all like they were idiots when they would pass. I never got my feelings hurt. I was just like, well, you guys are fucking imbeciles. They would weep, Rich. They would cry and say to me, I've never been so moved in my life. Can I meet her? And I'd bring them to meet her and they'd shake her hand and I'd walk them out, you know, to college. Like I'd walk them out to the parking lot and they would go like, well, you understand that as a, she's everything you think. You understand as a professional, I can't possibly yeah, sign can't her. And I'd be like, you're crying. Your shirt has snot on it. Like if she <laughs> did that to you, it's going to happen to every other person. And they, they, they couldn't get it. But the result was, you know, by the time I graduated college, I guess I graduated college in, in May. In August, her album was number one in the country. So I... And my senior year, I presented her album to like Electra Records at their A&R meeting. And during that, they hired me to be an A&R person. So I, I basically came out of college pretty set in that path. And I was able to buy myself an apartment and shit. Like stuff happened for me quickly. 
but I still had a crisis of the soul because it wasn't what I really was meant to do. And so it was a really weird thing because I got involved with great stuff and I, I love music so much, but it wasn't my, I was empty. Yeah. Well, you know, so again, similar because I felt a similar feeling, which is that I tried to feel the passion that they felt for their music and their songs. Uh, but I, I, I think that there's music people, you know, you can't, uh, entre- entrepreneurs have a little bit of a, of a delusion about the fact that they think they can honestly do everything and you can't cheat steps. So I would be in the studio and realize that, man, I didn't, you know, I don't know music like that. Like I, I could say comp vocals, right? I could say the terminology, but if someone asked me, I wouldn't be able to go deep into what that meant. I didn't love it like that. Tracy, Tracy Chapman was a prolific writer. Um, I mean, and when you made the comparison to how it was like dealing with an actor, that must have been a unique experience in the fact that like you were dealing with a writer, you were a writer, you didn't feel that same emotional pull to it. Was it that at the end of the day, what you were craving was like, I want some of the regard for me, for my work, for what I'm thinking? I would separate out Tracy from a lot of the others. Like Tracy was older than I was. I was really a kid still, right? I was in college. I was pretty, not pretty, I was in awe of her. And I, there wasn't much, she was also a, it's a remarkable thing. You know, she was very young, but she was, and for people who don't know, because they're young, I mean, she sold like 13 million albums worldwide. And then a couple of years later had another massive record with Give Me One Reason. And, um, you know, she became, she was nominated for like eight Grammys the year that that record came out, but she was such a complete package that all she really needed was us to find the right person to make a record with her, the right producer. And then I would talk to that producer and sort of say like, I think the tempo on this track is fucked up. Or, um, I think this song is better than that song. Go listen to that again. But Tracy knew the record she ultimately wanted to make. I think what happened as I got into that life, had very little to do with the regard because I got so much regard externally. It really had nothing to do with the external stuff. It really had to do with when I would listen to a song from the kind of writers I wanted to work with, I would know how to fix it in a way that was much more the way a writer would know how to fix it than an executive would know how to fix it. And the thing that attracted me to them was the way that they wrote. That's what turned me on. And I would get into the weeds with these people. And then sometimes they wouldn't want to go the whole way that I'd want to go. Sometimes they would, and that would be great. But if they wouldn't, I had such respect for all of them that I would be like, all right, I wasn't tough enough as an A&R person, really. A lot of the times I signed an act and then the record I made with them wasn't the one that broke them. They broke after. I found the talent. I knew it. I was able to recognize it, but they became huge after. Uh, and because I was kind of like held what they did in a kind of regard. No, what happened to me was like I was sitting in my office at 30. I had just had, I mean, I had our first kid. I was eating like cheeseburgers by the fistful. I'd never been a smoker. Suddenly I was smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on in my life? And I, I realized I was a blocked writer. When you allow a creative impulse to die, I had this whole notion in my head at 30. If you allow a creative impulse to die, it's like any other death. It's toxic. And I knew that the toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people that I loved. 
And if I let that happen, I'd become a bitter fucking person, jealous and not the kind of person who would be the kind of like dad and husband I want to be. So I was like, fuck, I got to change my life. And, and I realized I had to become, somehow I had to become the person making the art, not the person helping the people make the art, which was scary as hell, you know, because like I had a career and, and some security and, um, and I realized I was never going to be happy doing it. Even if I came, I always thought my whole life, oh, I'll become president of a record company, chairman of a record company. Yep. But then I realized that wouldn't make me happy. So did you just, was there like stories that were just in your head and you felt stifled? Like you wanted to bring things to life I that you couldn't? It was a feeling. It was much more of a feeling like I'm wasting my, I would look at my stacks of demos. I mean, you know, I would just look at my stacks of demos. Also, I started hating music and I love music. I started feeling competitive, not, it, I had all those bad feelings that happened. Someone would play me a great record and my initial instinct would be like rage instead of like joy. Rage that I didn't find at first. And I was like, that's wrong. You know, that's fucked up. So I, I started journaling and then through the, which is this process, the artist's way, morning pages. And through doing that, I found um, what I wanted to do. I went to my best friend. He was tending bar. And I was like, we, I got to write a screenplay. Uh, he was like, I'll show you how. We'll do it together. And then I went, you know, then I got lucky and walked to a poker club and the story kind of started to present itself. Also, my wife, Amy, always said to me, this isn't really what you're supposed to be doing. Like you have another, there's something else you're supposed to be doing. And you know, I didn't quit my job. Uh, I just started getting up earlier yep. because I didn't want to put the pressure on myself of quitting. And, and, and once I worked uh, an hour or two in the mornings doing the creative thing, it actually made my day at work so much better because I was like doing something from the part of me that felt really alive, which made, the rest of the day easier. I was easier in meetings. I was better to be around because I didn't feel thwarted. And then, you know, Dave and I turned out to be good enough at it that we wrote a script that became a movie that people loved. And then my life really changed. So before we go into fucking Rounders, because by the way, my life changed when Rounders came out also. <laughs> um, the thing that you mentioned about your wife is really um, crucial. It seems yeah. like you got married young, right? Did, yeah. Yeah, so so did I. And I think that... That thing that lives inside of us that is really attractive at first to your partner, to your wife, it's kind of the unknown. Like they're chasing something, I'm coming on the journey. They may have their own journey that they share with it or they just vicariously want to live through that journey, start a family with you, whatever it is. When a wife notices or your partner notices, your husband, whoever it is, that that fire right, is not only going out, but that you're saying things that you don't even believe like yeah no no i'm gonna be the president of the label and they see it it's not attractive and when they see it and they bring it to your attention they continue to do it over time and then the window starts closing and yeah. if i hadn't gone into sports and stopped complaining about being on tour buses and not feeling like right. i was becoming myself she was going to be done so that's the ultimate barometer it's like if it's inside of you and then they're done hearing it that means you probably ran well, out of time. Knew, yeah, well, it's really, it's so smart. Yes, she knew. Like, she knew that this wasn't, and of course, you're right. I wasn't cool. I remember walking with her down the street once, and she was like, you're supposed to be doing this other stuff, and I know you could do the thing in film or TV. And I was like, I have no idea how to get into those things. Like, how can you, it's not, like, easy for me to go do, I don't know how to fucking do, like, I remember feeling like, because she was saying the words that were so scary, which was like, you can go do this thing. And um, 
but you know, you want to you you want to think you have some answers. And I remember, I remember feeling like, how like the golf? It's funny, you know this. Like people would say, well, of course you can go from music sports or music to film or it's like it seems impossible. Yeah. To you, yeah, because we're all in our you're in this like like lane, um, but then you get little signs, right? Like I remember I did. I read a couple scripts from people who I'd met who were like getting somewhere. And I was like, that's not that fucking good. Like they're not that. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes you'd read a script and you'd be like, that's, imp-. I remember Dave sent me some Quentin Tarantino script before Quentin was well known, before Quentin had made a movie. And I was like, well, that's unfucking believable, but that was up here. And then most of the shit I would read was like down here. And I was like, well, I could do that. I think, Yeah. you know, I just have to show up and do it. I mean, the scary part is the fa- the fear of failure. So the fear of well, what if she's wrong? Like what if I'm wrong and she's wrong? And in fact, I don't have the passion for being um, an A&R person anymore. I don't want to run a record company anymore because I don't want to talk to promotion people. And then what if I'm not good enough to actually do this thing that I want to do? Well, then I'm nothing. These are the fears, right? Because you forget, well, no, I I might be very valuable as a husband, a father. Maybe Amy will figure it out. I'll find another way to contribute. But at those moments, especially when you're 29 or 30 years old, it, it just all feels impossible, impossible. overwhelming uh, because you feel the shit, right? Rich, I'm sure you, you feel the, almost like the gauntlet being thrown in front of you. And it's like, I don't know whether I have the strength. I don't know whether I have the, the perseverance to work that hard and that consistently, even if I'm being rejected, then of course you learn like, you get rejected four times, rejection doesn't fucking bother you. You just know how to move forward. But those first bunch of like, you know, those first, I mean, right when you're in the ring with a heavyweight, the first jabs tell you a lot. Yeah. But if you can get through the first jabs, um, for young people, sorry, a jab is in boxing, which was a sport people cared about a really long time ago. <laughs> uh, let me, it's like UFC, I guess, like John Johnson kicks to the knee or something. I want to, let me reframe it. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? Those first couple of jabs, it's like, oh, fuck. Oh, no, I can get through the jabs. Okay. Like, and um, so eventually that happens. And then you're like, all right, I'm in it now. I'm just moving forward. But that's the thing, though, is, by the way, the one thing that comes out of those four rejections is without even knowing it, you're in the film business. You, you, that's right. That's exactly it. It's really, I, I just had this talk the other day with a friend Wait, of mine. Wait, that's so smart, Rich. Say that again for people. What you said is so smart. Say that again. It's all important. Right. I said, as soon as you got those four rejections, you may have felt like, one could feel like it's the ultimate failure when really you just officially got into the film business. Yes. And say more. Say more about right. that. I will. I'm going to say more. I appreciate. I love this, man. I'm not, Let's put this on your pod feed too, bro. I'm yeah. interview me. Oh, I um, will. The thing I realized was similar to sports was that first of all, like the passion and love that you have for something that you didn't have in music, all of a sudden is on Front Street when you start talking about film. If you actually knew it, you can't cheat. You can't just say the next day I'm in the film world. But if you know it, you throw yourself into it and just do it. And you can speak the language. People embrace it instantly. When I switched into sports, all of those years of box scores and reading the articles in the sports section, when I could sit down with Geno Smith and his father and talk about what I expect out of a second round draft pick, he's looking at me like this guy's in the sports world. Period. You just got to fucking do it. Oh, my God. It's so deep what you're saying. There's so many layers to what you're saying. I always tell young people who ask about this business, I'm like, okay, 
the way we communicate with each other is by talking about films and shows and music and books. And so when you're, if you're young and you're hearing a couple of people to do this talk and they rattle off names you don't know, Jean-Luc Godard, Bergman, uh, um, some American uh, filmmaker, uh, Robert Bresson, whatever, write that shit down and go watch those movies. Like you have to love this shit enough that you're going to watch it all. You're going to know what you think about it. You're going to have an opinion about it because you're exactly right. Suddenly you're in a meet, you know, I never went to film school. I never shot a, uh, I never shot a frame of film. I never was in film school. And suddenly, because Dave and I wrote the script, I'm standing on the set of Rounders with all these actors, a director, cinematographers. And what do they all talk about? They all talk about movies. They all talk about, like you say, luckily, I was an encyclopedia about that shit. Not because I was trying to be either. I loved it so much. I was an encyclopedia about it. It was so important to me. That's exactly right. You were able to do that when you sat down with those people because you gave a shit about it. And then you kept making sure you got, yep. you kept making sure you stayed up on it. Yep. Even when it became a business, right? You still are kept yourself obsessed with it. Obsessed. You cannot stay, you cannot get out of touch. You can never be out of touch at any age beyond the fact you need to keep young people around you, hence Gianni, young dope people. But you also cannot lose touch. You can't fall out of the conversation. You can't be irrelevant. You can't be dated. You can't reference players from 40 years ago. You know that. that's why you just quickly made the UFC reference. And sim similarly, the principles of business that you learned in the music world, those, those transitioned over easily. That's the same thing. But the language, the difference between music, Sports and even within sports, football, basketball is Chinese, Japanese, Hebrew, Spanish, different languages. So if you read and study and you continue to do that work, the principles from your other endeavors were easy to transition over. So you're this encyclopedia. You also just ran, uh, you worked as an A&R. You have just as much right to be in the film business at that point then as anybody. Yeah. And, you, and, you're, exact one, and you're engaging in the conversations and you're dealing with, like you said, moment you're dealing with rejections, you're not someone who's like, I wish I wrote something. I wish I tried something. You're someone who did it. I wish I, that's why when people tell me, what do I do? How do I get it? I'm like, go shoot something. It's never yep. been easier to shoot something ever, ever. All you yep. need is an iPhone and a fucking idea and go shoot something. Go shoot something and put it online. Go get heat off of what you do. Go yep. get heat off of what you do. And suddenly it will all, you'll flip the paradigm. You know it as a rep. It is so much what you want is a rep to want you, as opposed to you trying to convince a rep. The convincing a rep is a, like, a very difficult thing to do. It's doable, but it's a very difficult thing to do. You wanna do the work that makes them think, oh, if I could get my hands on this, I'll get somewhere. And that is the paradigm. That is the paradigm flip. But, and it's, it's never been easier to do that, but people still have an old mindset where they think I'm not valid unless I have an agent. The truth is you can do so many things without a professional sort of, um, so, without somebody having to be a professional connector. At the right time, those people are essential, but you can get very far without any of that stuff. Especially now, it's, yeah. ball, it's ball possession, man. Don't give it to the defense. You gotta stay with the ball. 
It doesn't matter if you're getting two-yard runs, two-yard runs, stay with the ball in your hands. That's being on the offensive. Gianni and I always talk about scheduling our week with like, a friend of mine told me this, uh, Aria from Line Tree said, schedule your... um, your 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 uh, your phone calls and your meetings where seventy five percent of the time you're on the offensive. You're not going to get as much done if you're always on the defensive. And in terms of those connectors and those people, that's exactly right. You used to be like, man, I need to get an agent, or how am I ever going to get in the fashion world? No kids should have an excuse anymore. Wait, what's that guy's name? The guy who started IMG, Jack Nicholas. This guy, Mark. Uh not McKinnon or something. Uh, I know what you're talking about. That dude who wrote, you know, what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School or whatever. He 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 was like the first big sports agent. And he said, never take a, never accept an incoming phone call. I mean, except from your most important client. Yep. Don't accept an incoming phone call. You make every out, return every call, but on your time, in your schedule, when you know exactly what you want to get out of that interaction, and it's a pretty good piece of advice. McCormick, right? Yeah, that's right. Mark McCormick, who started IMG, and he had Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and, and changed the world. Okay, so you walk in the poker club. At that point, are you partners with David? Dave is my lifelong best friend and creative partner. He's who was tending bar when I went to him, and I was like, I got to figure out how to write a script. And he's like, come on, we'll do it together. So then rounders. We wrote rounders together. And I called him it's like in the middle of the night after leaving the poker club, and I was like, this is the world. I never heard people talk like this, and there's this whole underground world of poker, and I was a poker degenerate, and – Loved it. I was reading every poker book anyway. It's the same thing. Like I was reading every poker book, studying it, um, watching World Series of Poker. Um, my, my friend, you might know this guy, Shecky Green. It was a uh, Shecky wa- was giving me World Series of Poker um, videotapes and showing that shit to me. And then I went to the found this underground poker club, and um, and then Dave was like, "Okay, well, we got to figure out who these characters are." So the two of us started going to the poker club, like most nights and, and writing stuff down, like whatever we heard or whatever people said. And then we started meeting every morning before work. He would finish bartending, get a couple hours sleep. I'd wake up super early. We would meet in this little storage locker that was underneath our apartment. My wife cleared out the storage locker for us. It had a slop sink, room for one chair. I'd sit on the floor and we would meet for two hours every morning, super early. And that's how we wrote rounders. And did you leave music to do it or were you doing both? No, I would go to my job. I would go to my job. I'd be out, but it, but I would, Rich. I would go to the record company. Luckily, that job, no one expects you to be there first thing in the morning, because part of your job is to be out at night. You know, because that back then, you, the way you'd see bands, it was pretty big. Inter- I mean, you would see bands by having to go out to all the clubs. You know, I would go to ten. I would go see ten bands a night, a lot of nights. But what I would really do is I would I'd start playing poker. So I would I'd go <laughs> let's say I'd see a band at nine. Then I'd swing by the Mayfair Club. I would get a seat in a game. I would start playing. And then if the next band was at 1130, someone, they'd hold my seat. I would go see the next band. If they were great, I would stay and tell someone to clear my place. But uh, if they weren't great, I would go back to the thing. And then I would go back to, the, to see a band. You know, you're just, I was just living kind of a crazy existence. Um, the big advantage for me back then and always is no drinking and no drugs. So I could... I basically could be exhausted, but I could like live. Um, I mean, I would have a couple drinks a week. I just never had an issue with it and I never did drugs. So it was just a very easy sort of um, 
on my body for that kind of life. It was as easy on your body as it could be. Yep. You know what's funny about gamblers? Gam- <laughs> gamblers always say things like this. They'll be like, look, I, I could do everything in moderation. I never drank too much. I never smoked too much. And then they'll say this line. I could sit at a blackjack table for 18 hours and have two or three That's drinks. Hilarious. And I'll be like, well, why the hell were you at a blackjack table for 18 hours? That ain't moderation. Man. No doubt about it. No, I can't. So so um, I found a way to make poker not click into that gambling problem thing, but I cannot play blackjack. I cannot play craps. I cannot do sports betting. If I That is my leak. My leak is gambling. I, and uh, if I do any of those other things, I will just, what will happen is you and I would go in, we'll be super mellow. We could play poker, it's super mellow. Like I, it's, I treat it like chess. And then if we went over to the craps table and you enticed me to play craps, within an hour and a half, I would be grabbing you by the shirt. And I would be like, you know I'm fucking, go, go get more money. And you'd be like, go use your name. Like, it's Max. It's fucking maxed out. And then you'd be like, well, what about the fucking credit card, dude? You're obviously like, you have money. Go get it. And I'd be like, I fucking got all of it. The machine won't. Like, that is what would happen to me in... So I, I haven't made a bet in a casino in 25 years. Really. I get it. By the way, if you shook me, you know what I'd be saying to you? I'm fucking maxed out too, Brian. <laughs> like I won't you I so I made a I'll deal with myself years ago. If I like even when I would go on even when I would go on like a gambling trip back when I would do that kind of thing, I would send money ahead, but I would not take a line. I knew that if I took a line of credit, I would get myself in terrible trouble, so I just would not get a line of credit. I would send a lot of money ahead, but I would not get a line of credit. You have a line? You have a line of credit? I don't take a line of credit everywhere. I'm very lucky that a lot of times I travel with KD, who's got an incredible line of credit. But um, what I do do is when I win what I start with, I'll give my chips to my boy or to my brother, and then within an hour, and I'll say to him, don't give me these chips yes. back. And then within yes. an hour, I'm like, give me my goddamn yes. fucking money, man. Don't. <laughs> so Gianni's so lucky. You know why he's so lucky? Because he's an avid billions watcher. However... What he can do tonight that I can't do, which I am so jealous of, is watch Rounders for the first time. Oh, you never saw it? Oh, you're going to have a great time. I haven't. Good. I can't Enjoy wait. Enjoy it. Watch that shit. So were these characters people that you created or that you saw and evolve? KGB? Joey Kanish is a character based on a real dude named Joel Bagels. He was an amazing guy who was in the New York poker world the first night I played I sat at a table with him and he, his rhetoric, he said in the poker game of life, women of the rig, me really said that line and we gave that line to worm, but he said it, Joey, uh, he died a few years ago and we wrote an, we wrote a really moving thing for Grantland when, when Joey died. Um, when Joel Bagels died, that's the real guy. Joey Kanish is the character. Um, but the rest of the characters totally made up. Uh, there was a dude in the New York poker underground called KGB. He was an old Russian, but he wasn't um, he wasn't a great poker player or a wise guy. He kind of helped run the clubs, but he was just, he was a very old guy. And um, and his name was Eddie KGB. We went to him and we were like, we want to use your name. And we, he signed off on the nickname. You know, not his real name, but the nickname. But we had to invent the characters. Totally invented and. I think after the movie came out, he kind of lived on it. I had a law school professor who used to drink a lot of gin and who I loved and who would sit up with me and who gave me 
a lot of advice and breaks in the way that Petrovsky gives breaks to Mike. Um, he was a guy named Abraham Abramovsky. So he also was kind of inspired by a real life character, but the poker players, the, um, Mike Worm, KGB and all the rest of them, they were in, invented. Um, I went, I mean, it's funny, you know, I went to college with a dude, everyone called Worm, but he was a sports, um, but he was a bookie. And, uh, and so like the idea of naming a character Worm was fun to us, but, but the Worm that I went to college with and the Worm in the movie are not at all like other than both like to gamble and um, probably sometimes uh, skirt the law in various other ways. Worm's character drove me. I mean, that's just what a great actor Ed Norton was. But I, I mean, I wanted to kill him after they got their asses beat in the, the worst. Yep, the worst. Highway time, the worst. I agree, man. We he uh, Edward's just incredible, and um, I, I think Damon. I love this movie called Pope of Greenwich Village, and Eric Roberts in that movie plays his characters, Eric Roberts and Mickey Rourke. And that character sort of inspired us in certain ways on Worm. That kind of friend that you have who just really at the wrong moments decides to be selfish. And I mean, instead of doing the right thing for you. I mean, you must see it all the time, actually, in what you do, where you spot in a group of, in a group of friends, you must have to sometimes look out for which friend really is going to have your players back and which friend is going to look to take advantage of your player and which friend has a good heart, but sometimes has people into his life. Like, you know, we all have to go through that when we're young. And when you're dealing with young people who suddenly get money, I'm sure you have to look at yeah. all of that stuff, right? Oh uh, yeah. All the time. I mean, I think I actually think I'm starting to use that same skill set. I think I have in reading people in anything, like if the energy's bad, I'm not doing business with you, yeah. you know, um, you know, it's even a challenge with me when it comes to my kids' friends because I can't do that with them, right? I can't say like, yo, why are you even worried about this girl? Like, her, she's whack. Get her out of here. But in business, if I feel that, I'm not dealing with it. Yeah, with the kids, it's weird. You, I remember once I was standing on a basketball court and I told this one, this one mom we were friends with, we were talking about through the kids, and I was like, I can pretty much tell you at 25 what they're each going to be like. Yes. And they were six and, 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 and she was like, come on. I was like, that one is going to be cheating at stuff. And that <laughs> one is, I was like, I can just tell you, and yeah. I don't want to do that, but if I can actually tell you, and I would say I was uh, unbelievably accurate. It, I was so right about it. Now, sometimes a kid will surprise you and change an event will happen in their lives that causes growth right? Testosterone in boys is a real thing. And so sometimes a kid who's maniac, when that settles down, they can change. But 95% of the time by six or seven, they're baked. Yeah. And you can see uh, exactly what you said. Don't worry about that friend. That's a bad, that person is not going to be in your life in four years. Yeah, exactly. And they're going to come to you. And you can also tell when it's going to like, believe me, that paradigm is going to switch, man. in in two years, that person's going to need you. Yeah. Why? Yep. Without question. You're going to be right. You can say some of that. You can say some of that as a parent. All right. My All kids right. are older. I can tell you that you can say some of that. All right. So that's good to know, actually. Um, but that's the thing. It's like you could, we all spotted worm from the jump. So it's like we wanted to reach in and tell Matt Damon, like, bro, he does yes. not care about you. So that movie was hard to get made, though, as good as it was. It got rejected. Well, yeah, the script got rejected a bunch at first. I mean, that's just what happens. Yeah. Right. But, um, 
but of course at the time i was like going through it and feeling those are the first rejections and also the first critical reviews were very negative and then it turned around so you know you're always in the beginning of any career i think you're learning these lessons there's no way to go through them without you know if i say to you hey reviews you shouldn't internalize them i've learned that lesson now from a lifetime you know in the beginning it's real in the beginning you're either built in a way that you absorb that stuff or not and then you have to train yourself to take the lessons and take the long view but like i've lived at this all long enough rich where uh someone poorly reviewed rounders and then reviewed oceans 13 and said you know why aren't these guys doing the great shit they did in rounders and it was like dude you hated rounders like <laughs> you're gonna like like i you you live long you just realize they don't fucking know any like all the time they don't know they yep. just don't they don't know they don't know when did you when did it um well, you know what? I'm, my brother will kill me if I don't ask you this. Just tell me about the Oreos quick. So, Gianni, when you watch the movie tonight, there's this insane scene where Matt Damon spots KGB's tell because he eats the Oreos when he has a certain hand, doesn't eat them, etc. But where did that get originated from? You know, the first day that we were set, we outlined the script for a while, but then the first day we sat down to write pages, it was Columbus Day. My office, my music business office was closed. So we went there, EMI on 23rd Street, Park Avenue South. So we went there, sat in my office, yellow legal pad and started writing. And one of us just was like, when, when KGB answered the door, we were like, he just put an Oreo in his mouth. And at the time we didn't know its significance. He was just a guy eating Oreos. And then when we got to the part where he's playing, the Oreos were there on the table. And he's eating them and we were we knew we needed it we understood that beat was going to have a tell revealed and we were like what do we have to work with here and it was like what we have to work with here is these oreos oh my god fucking genius um when a movie is poorly reviewed or for instance doesn't have like groundbreaking box office numbers when did you realize though because it start now it lives in like this phenomenon space so when does that happen like how many years before that happens well like a year after or so when it came out on back then i guess dvds like fraternities started just watching it you know you had these movies in college that you and your friend's house that just were going all the time so like we had princess bride was going all the time or diner or some shit like what was going all the time for a bunch of generations of kids was rounders and we just saw that and then I can't downplay. So that all started happening. And then one of those people was Bill and, and you can't downplay Simmons's role or I won't, you know, Simmons just started talking about the movie in a way um, that I think because one of his great gifts is sort of recognizing these cultural moments. And as he recognizes them, cause he's one of those people talking about it. And his, he gave out the NBA awards in like 2000 his MBA awards column was all with quotes from rounders. And that was a couple years after the movie came out. And I remember reading it and I didn't know him then. And that's when I went and got to know him. That's why we've been friends for so long. Uh, and he would talk about the movie and then, and then a whole bunch of people would talk yeah. about it. Are you doing a sequel or is it not happening? Someone like you has to figure the rights out. They're owned by Cutter. They're, the rights, the, the rights for the library, I think are controlled by uh, a group in Cutter, and it's just been very, and uh, you know, some very um, focused business person has to figure out how to sort of like 
get to the bottom of the rights issues and then figure out how to cut deals for all of us. Everyone would do it. Um, Matt would do it. Edward would do it. Malkovich and we would do it. But it's, it's very complicated. We all have like pretty busy lives. So it, it, it's hard to like make it our, our life focus. And I really don't know how to, honestly, I don't know how to deal with some film, film fund and cutter to make it happen. And I don't want to assign some agent to do it. And then it ends up not. So I just haven't. I understand. Well, I think the, the mystique of it, it's like, uh, um, yeah, like chronic, fine. like the chronic two aftermath, you know, one of Dre, like Dre's album, it'll just never come out. Rounders two. We'll just talk about it forever. So you did oceans 13. Um, yeah. and you then had a few other things into billions. Were you always less is more? Were you always looking at your discography as like, let me turn some things down. I mean, well, I know you, you were a writer on a lot, but were you always like when you're in something, you're all in? Well, if you're going to direct or like if you're going to make a movie yourself, yeah, you have to be so passionate about it. But also it's hard to get shit made. And at various times, you have various needs as you're like a, in any career. So the screenwriting jobs for a period of time were like super lucrative jobs. So you would take, Dave and I could take one of those jobs, rewriting some huge movie for a movie studio and you do one or two of those and you have a great year in a way, but then that became like soul killing to me and him. And so we stopped doing that. No, I would rotate. So we would make independent movies. So I don't know, we made like 13 movies in some way to producer, director, writer, which is a lot. And because they take a movie takes a year and a half, two years, but we would, um, we would do like the screenwriting gigs, maybe make some money, and then go make an independent movie that would take like a year and a half. And, and you know, I'd make $50,000 for 18 months of work. And then at the end of that, I would have spent a lot of my savings and then I would have to um, go take some screenwriting jobs. And uh, you would sort of, that was like the role. That's like, if you're an artist trying to make indie movies, cause you're trying to tell stories you give a shit about, like you're going to have times that, are financially rough so we just wouldn't live big amy and me and we just found a way to like kind of make all of that stuff work um but then like oceans was the best because now you're making a big hollywood movie but you're working with the greatest director steven soderbergh and that cast of actors and that's when it all would line up amazingly well that's when you want to throw yourself completely into it um and that didn't feel at all like a screenwriting gig where you're sort of like just doing that job. Um, but those are really hard to come by. Those huge movies with like that kind of a group of people that you're into, because that's about gambling. It's about all the shit that we care about. So that was perfect. Um, that was like a perfect combination of stuff. How did Billions get started? Billions got started for you. We tried to do a show like it like 10 years before or seven years before. And then the crash happened of 2008. So we weren't able to. Um, but Dave and I had been thinking a lot about doing TV and we'd made a few deals in a row with HBO shows that didn't quite go. And um, we had an idea and Andrew Ross Sorkin had an idea and an agent named Joe Cohn at CA heard both ideas and was like, you guys should get together. So we got together and the ideas were complementary ideas. 
So we partnered with Andrew. He had this incredible Rolodex contact group and he was able to get us with not just the billionaire hedge fund people. We knew some of them. He knew many more of them, but he also knew the prosecutorial side and he could get us in the room with those people. And we were really fast. Dave and I were way into this idea that prosecutors back then, U.S. attorneys had an incredible amount of discretion and so in what they would choose to go after. And we noticed guys like Christie, Giuliani, Spitzer, Cuomo going from prosecutorial jobs to these big political jobs. And we saw that they were using their positions, not for the public good, but for personal gain. And we were like, if you take someone like that and set them against a billionaire, you could have almost like a Shakespearean thing where it's like a nation state against a king. And, um, and it just seemed to us, oh, this is a series. Like, this is really a series. So we wrote it on spec instead of pitching it. It's another way we kind of inverted the way people do things. Most people at our level, um, because you can get a deal if you pitch pretty easily, if you have, you know, not everybody, but if you've done enough, they'll take the flyer on giving you a deal to write something. It's not, you know, it's enough money for you, but it's not a lot of money for them. And then they have all the leverage though, because they have all the optionality. They can make it or not make it. You have no optionality because you've sold it to them. Uh, all you have is some bread, uh, not enough bread to like last you anything more than six months. So we decided not to engage in that game. We decided to take all, all the risk on the front end, meaning we wrote the pilot of Billions, the first episode that you saw, we wrote that without a deal in place so that we would have the optionality and the leverage. If it was good enough that people wanted it, we would get to determine a bunch of stuff like what they had to pay, what creative controls we could get, when they would have to shoot it, um, all sorts of stuff that we were able to hope that we could protect ourselves. The huge downside to that is almost all the time, nothing will happen if you write something on spec. But if you're lucky enough to write something that someone wants, you do then control something valuable, which is this piece of property that they want. We took the chance and it turned out to, to, to be worthwhile chance. So I'm not even exaggerating. Billions is in my probably just like top five pieces of content in my life. You know, like those, those movies you talked about in college for me was like Casino and Goodfellas. Um, billions is so important to so many people in terms of like, there's so little of value for us. There's so little to look forward to as a society. Content is so oversaturated. Um, for me, at least, I can't dive deep into subtitles. I, I don't have the uh, attention span. Billions is like my, I put my phone down and check out. Um, did you like, you A know what a hit you have, clearly, right? This is a monster. Yeah. Yes, it has been rewarding in every way that something can be rewarding. Yes. And to your point earlier, when you were explaining the prosecution, like obviously the sexy in the show is Axelrod and all of his money, but now I have a real understanding of how important Rhodes is in comparison because I, I didn't get it. I was like, all right, why is Axel making this guy a politician? But now I understand yeah. the intertwinedness. So. Yeah, right. It's all it's all this stuff that's like going on in the real world, you know, that you want to echo the way these guys all go um, go after each other. No, Rich, the, all we wanted, yes, I, I will say when we wrote the pilot and finished it, it was a really low, 
Before that was really low point, like the lowest point in our professional lives because we'd made a movie that bombed terribly. We'd gotten fired off of doing a show with Scorsese before um, we ever written anything. We were supposed to be the showrunners for um, the music business show. And uh, Empire or something? No, not Empire. Um, uh, the, the one, it was originally called v Vinyl. We were supposed to be the showrunners for Vinyl and it didn't work out. And it was just a very low period where... Uh, basically people were like, you're going to have a hard time getting hired. And, uh, but when we wrote the script, the billions, I knew that it was going to get made. I was like, this is, this is better than a lot. This is what's supposed to happen. Like you write something like this, it goes and gets made. And, uh, I had a tremendous amount of confidence in it. I remember, um, finish, we, we, we finished it largely over Christmas vacation. And I, Amy and I decided not to go away that Christmas because we just weren't that confident. I didn't know what the next year was going to be like. And I was like, yeah, I think we should just stay home. But, and really I wanted to work on billions. And I remember going to my, I would walk across central park in the snow because little office Dave and I had, and, 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 uh, I just remember going there and, and, and working on the script sending it to him at night and he would work on it where he was and send it back to me the next day. And I remember just, it was really weird. New York is pretty empty during that time. And it could have been a depressing time because like I say, I didn't want to roll the dough to go and have a, a big vacation. I just didn't feel like I was in that place in my life. And, um, but it wasn't depressing because I was like, no, we're sitting on fire here. And so I felt it and I, I knew what was going to happen. So the fact that people, the one thing you don't know is whether the culture is going to salute, but yes, I mean, I've had the experience of Ty Ty saying, come to my office and going to Ty Ty's office and having him call Jay-Z and Jay-Z going, your show is my favorite show. And like, that is everything in the world that you could ever want. Um, and, you know, KD coming to my office, like reading Sports Illustrated and seeing KD talking about billions when he's winning the championship. And um, I remember reading that Sports Illustrated and you know what a huge basketball fan I am and my son is. And, um, you know, I remember reading that in SI. I mean, I've written about basketball for SI. You know, it matters to me a lot. And I remember reading that and just thinking like, well, that's it. Like we did the thing that we wanted to do. So, yes. And that's happened. Like the fact that that's happened a few times in my life is amazing to me. And I don't ever lose sight of it or it, it never stops. I guess for some people, maybe it could, but I never, it's not even like I have to tell myself, like I'm just built in a certain way. I will never stop like loving the fact, like a friend of mine told me Tiger Watch was binging the show a while back. And you know, I freaked out. Like the fact that Tiger would be home watching Billions, fucking amazing to me. I can't play it off like that doesn't matter to me. It totally matters to me. But that's, if it didn't, it'd be a problem, right? That's the that's what this is about. I mean, KD told me, KD told me, like think about Kevin Durant telling me somebody that texted him after a game the other day as if it was like a 14-year-old kid just got seen for the first time, you know? And he was like, yo, you're not going to believe who texted me. This shit's crazy. And I mean, that's the fun part of seeing people so good at their craft. It is, uh, right? Yeah. It's the fun. I mean, it is part of what, like... Like um, I went to, I was writing about uh, the PGA tournament for SI to last summer, I guess, not this summer. And I went out to Beth Page Black 
and I was by the driving range and I had heard that Rory liked the show. And um, so he was walking off and I said, hey, Rory. And I told him my name and, and he was about to go tee off. And I was like, hey, dude, I just wanted to say hi. And then Rory was about to tee off in the fucking major. And he's like, come on, just walk with me, dude. I want to ask you stuff about the show. And so I kind of walk Rory over to where the tee oh, is. Oh, my God. And he's just, and someone, so someone filmed it. Someone knew who I, you know, sometimes you don't know. And it's hilarious because it's Rory McIlroy. And you see me like I'm a little kid, just kind of like <laughs> bounding after him. I'm like, I can't believe that, that, that he's that knows the show that well. And I loved seeing it because I was like, yeah, I'm still like that. Like, I still find this shit super fun. 100%. That's why, by the way, I'm diving deep into the trading card world because it's like pulling on that nostalgic, like 14-year-old feeling again of that. Oh, my God. Did you? I didn't listen to the episode. Did you and Gary Vee just geek out on like Yu-Gi-Oh cards and shit? I can't get into the Yu-Gi-Oh card trading, man. No, I don't. I'm not into that. I'm not into that. But I did. I spoke to Gary about it a little bit. But the next guest, two weeks later, Dan Fleischman, I don't know if you know him, from the coffee breakers, I spoke real like inside baseball on trading cards. It's pretty cool. Because Gary, I, Gary called me up like, I don't know Gary well, but he called me up about a month and a half ago and he's like, listen to me, go buy these sets of, do it today. It's an, and I just, I, I, like that guy's amazing. amazing. I'm such yeah. a fan. But I was like, I can't, I don't, I, like, did you ever back in the day have any of those real sports bettors try to give you the, I once met a guy who was like one of those real dudes and he's like, call me on Saturday morning and I'm going to give you exactly what to do. And I did it for two <laughs> weeks and it's like so much fucking work. It's like, yeah. you know, you've got to bet exactly, you've got to bet 60 games exactly this way. You've got to do triple play. And this was like the last time I ever sports bet. It was like, I know when it was too, it was right after around like 1998. And he was like, you, you, you got to, this is the triple. You got to bet this one. And I'm like, what do we get at all this? He's like, you're going to win like 7%. If you do this for the whole season, we're going to win 7%. And I was like, I'm going to do all this to win 7%. And he's like, yeah, but you get to sweat the games. And I was like, I don't want to sweat the games. Yeah, exactly. You know what it is? It's the, that's why you said your one leak is sports gambling because, because of, I think maybe tell me if I'm wrong because of the way our minds work, all of those bets and same thing with trading cards, having to check it for 12, 13 hours of the day to get to somewhere that you're like, well, what if I just put X amount of money on one game? Can I just get there? Well, yeah, I want and the game. Yes, I want yeah. that, which is like, yeah, for me, it's not really sports betting. It's much, it's blackjack and craps. It's again, it's really like craps table, very bad. Craps table, bad, <laughs> bad not, no. Yeah. In fact, I mean, if you ever see me near a craps table in a casino, tackle me. Like, don't. Pull you, pull you. All right, perfect. Yeah, I got to be pulled. So some billions rapid fire. Um, were all of those actors and actresses the first choices? I mean, probably not. Any cool stories about someone you wanted for a character? Well, yeah, dude, Paul was on another. Sh Paul was supposed to do a different show. So we were told he was unavailable. Literally the day, the instant we got a call from someone who said that show didn't go. And within a minute, I was calling Paul sending him and his agent, his manager, Perry is her name. I called Perry, Dave and I called Perry. I emailed Paul, I called Paul, I sent him the script. I was on a plane the next morning. Dave and I were on a plane the next morning to LA. We had dinner with him that night. We shook his hand the next day. Like within 48 hours of him being available, he was in the show. And Damien too was a first choice, but we had heard that he wouldn't do TV after Homeland. And in fact, the head of the networks closed with him and said that. 
So then we did have conversations with a couple other people. And then the head of the network called and said, I've been thinking about it. And I think if I call Damien and I tell him why this is great and I send it to him, I think we can get him. And it was a first trip. We were just like, yes, please go get him. And then Dave and I had to like, we had to really talk to him for a long time. Like, I would say that was like not his first, at first, he was like not wanting to do television, not wanting to leave his family and come to America for a long period of time. So that was a, many Skypes before he flew in. We went to um, a Momofuku restaurant and all agreed that we would do it together. But Maggie Siff, like Maggie Siff who plays Wendy, I mean, a hundred women ran red for that part. And we knew that was the best part on the show. We knew we wanted that character to win the first season and we could not find the right person. And it drove us crazy. Famous people, people we loved. And then Maggie read, she just had a baby and she was at home and she just read like on a couch at her house, in a chair at her house. And I got home one day, the casting director had sent a bunch of tapes and that was one of them. And I remember just turning it on. I loved her on Mad Men, but I turned it on and she starts talking and I lost my mind. I fucking called Dave and I was like, whatever you're doing right now, go to your computer and pull up Maggie Siff. We found our person. And, um, and then we had her fly to New York and we did a whole special thing so we could show her to the network in the right light because I knew I would only make the show with her. And that if they said no to her, I wouldn't make the show. And, um, because you have to do that, you know, when you're doing something like this, when you know, because as I said, when I read Billions, when you know certain things, you have to like own it. And I knew it had to be her and they got it. And then we had her. So yeah, it was like that pretty much the whole thing on Billions. And then, you know, once the first season goes, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, but like you can pretty much go after who you need. Two interesting things, just uh, something I thought about this morning. So the S&M part for Rhodes and then Taylor's character. Yes. Uh, um, was that very thought out? How did this, those two kind of storylines? The S&M thing is really clear. That came, David and I with Steven Soderbergh made a movie called The Girlfriend Experience that later became a TV series. And we didn't make the TV series, but we made the movie. When we were making that movie, we were interviewing these women sex workers who were like $3,000 an hour, $2,000 an hour. One woman showed us her tax forms and she made like a million seven fifty the year before being escorting men places. And when we would interview them, inevitably they would tell us that the most powerful client they had wanted to be on the receiving end of hardcore S and M kind of treatment. They would say it again and again. They would say it so often it would be the last thing they'd say in an interview. You'd finish, they would tell you all the stories. They go one other thing. We'd say what? And they'd say, I carry a special piece of equipment with me because always the richest, most powerful dude wants me to, you know, do things to him in that area. And we'd be like, what do you mean? Like, what? Like, what? <laughs> Say it again. But we heard it like though the first th three times you hear it, you kind of like write it off. The 20th time you hear it, you're like, this is a pathology. And so knowing that the stuff Spitzer did, you know, you didn't want to have the character with a leak like that. So exactly, but you knew that these guys who were on the front lines of like enforcing morality are usually, or not usually, often, sometimes has to do with some shame they feel about some aspect of themselves. 
And we realized, well, Chuck is like one of these guys that these sex workers were describing to us and that we could give him that and keep it within the bounds of his marriage. Dave and I were very sure we wanted to keep it within the bounds of his marriage. So it was like also exploring what does a long-term marriage with powerful people in New York look like? And you could use the S&M for any kind of accommodations people make in their, in their powerful marriage. And so that's where that came from. Um, Taylor came from uh, when Sam was at Harvard and Anna was in high school. Each of them came home and told us a story about meeting people, being in situations where people told their pronouns. And this is five years ago, so it's before this was in the mainstream because we helped bring it to the mainstream. And I had never heard of that. And I had never heard of gender non-binary people. And like you said, you can't get old. You have to stay aware. So when they told us about it, we start interviewing young people and who were either transgendered or were what they used to call gender queer. That's the word they would use, gender non-binary. And we would talk to them and learn about it. And we were like, well, there's a great way to have a character who from the outside doesn't seem like Axe but who on the inside is a lot like Axe or Axe recognizes themselves in this character. And that's how we came up with Taylor. Incredible. So how does Billions go on forever? Because I hate right? when I, How do these, like when right? Sopran Sopranos, Six Feet Under, like the, I was depressed. So how long can we keep this going? Well, soon enough, we're going to start shooting and we'll finish season five. We'll shoot all of season six. So you'll have five and six. And David and I certainly plan on making another season or two after that. In terms of when I said less is more, I think what I meant was you have two pieces of work. You know, it's like no matter how many things you do in your life, yeah. people will remember Jay-Z for being the greatest rapper ever, even though he's a billionaire business tycoon. You've created two things that from a legacy standpoint – you could take with you forever. You have made an impact in the last hundred years of media and entertainment. And that to me is like as important as anything else you've done, you know? So, um, and, and sometimes it's not about having 800 things that I look, David and I feel like we couldn't agree with you more about that being the intention. All you want, if you can leave some work that means something to people and like, especially during these times, like the letters, you know, the letters that I get from my podcast too, the moment, which people should listen to. Uh, it, I don't know, man, if you can do something that gives people just like a little bit of happiness, it does make you feel good. Like it's selfish. It's all selfish, right? Uh, but I do get off on it. Like what a great thing that I can bring. To, first of all, like to me, that I can bring people who are like having a shitty time. But also, you know, that I can bring Kevin Durant a little bit of joy for all the joy Kevin Durant has brought me. That's a fucking amazing feeling to me. Yeah. You know, and the, and, and the, and, 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 and the, as you know, when you do stuff like this, it gives you also a tremendous amount of access to the people who mean something to you. 1, and so that part of it is incredible too, right? That's the part that you didn't necessarily, none of us really, until you're in the position, you actually don't anticipate that. Maybe you did. It wasn't a consciously as much, but that part of what your reach becomes. Yeah. That, you know, if I, if the kid in me knew, like we haven't talked about basketball much and we got to end this, but you know, if the kid in me knew that I would be this tight with the league, I would have like not been able to handle it. You know, basketball was every, I was, you know, I played varsity basketball, like basketball was everything to me. So like basketball, and tennis, those are my things that I cared about. Those are the sports I played varsity and that meant so much to me. So, you know, that I have friends in the NBA because of the 
because of the artistic work I've done is crazy to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I have three owners of teams that I speak to regularly, GMs, presidents, and players. It's crazy. that, And I can't lose sight of that. Yep. Uh, how like lucky and remarkable that is. I'll also say, Rich, I don't know if you ever saw it, but Dave and I think like the best thing we ever did in a movie that will f- find an audience long-term is this movie Solitary Man starring Michael Douglas. And if you like Grounders and Billions, you will love Solitary Man. And it's our best reviewed thing that we ever did too. It just was an independent film, but it's worth your time and it's worth everybody's time to watch. And uh, Gianni, you have a question? So based off your IMDb, I do see that there's a constant theme throughout your films of deception, you know, characters getting away with something really sly. Here's what I'll say. You're totally right. And Solitary Man's a prime example of it, actually. Uh, we love the idea of in America, the way people mythologize themselves and the stories that they tell and the way that they try to seem like they have all the answers and the way they try to enlist you in their vision of the world. And so, yes, in our stuff, there's usually somebody who's trying to get one over on somebody by presenting themselves as having a lot of answers that maybe they don't have. And sometimes maybe they pull it off and sometimes maybe they can't pull it off. But it's a very American idea, right? British people don't really talk that way. They don't really come into a room and tell you the narrative of who they are. But Americans and American hustlers do do that. This is this oral tradition that we have. And so you're totally right. We're fascinated by it. The way we grew up watching business dudes on Long Island try to con their way into restaurants and shit. Like you just would watch it and you'd be like, how do these guys have the nerve to fucking do this? Like, what does it, what does it take to be able to go up? You know, there's a line of people. I know you could do it, Rich. There's a line of people and you got to be the one to cut, let them all think you're a dick for walking to the front and then lean over and say to the guy, hey, here's why you want to give me the table. I was really just couldn't, I just always loved the people with the balls to do it, even while I was like standing online, maybe cursing them out. And uh, so we write about those guys. Dude, let me tell you something. For a period of time, I I, I really thought that was the only thing I could do well, was go to the front (laughs) of the restaurant online. Um, No, I'm very good at that too now. I can go get myself (laughs) sorted out in a restaurant, but I'll do it ahead of time. Yeah. So before I let you go, you mentioned sports. Um, When someone asks me what the coolest part of my job, I don't even flinch. It's like I get to go into basketball arenas for free and watch basketball any night of the week. Um, And there's a game element to what you've written, but do you think that there will be a time in your career where you will really hone in and write something rooted in sports. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my favorite things that we ever did was we made a 30 for 30 um, on Jimmy Connors. That's like one of the best 30 for 30s. And I got to see this. Holy it, shit. Yeah, Rolling Stone but said it was the fifth best of all the 30 for 30s. It's called, this is what they want. And I'm it's watching great. it tonight. I'm watching it tonight. Dude, you'll love it. It's on, it's on Amazon. You'll love it. I'm watching uh, it tonight. So we got to make that. And that was like, cause tennis is the other thing for me with uh, basketball. And so getting to make that and meet all those dudes and hang out with them and um, hit tennis balls with them was incredible. Uh, yeah, I would love it. I, I, you know, getting to play sports with, you know, getting to shoot with JJ Redick, which I do sometimes, is an unbelievable thing. And yes, of course, if you could figure out the right thing. I put a letter on JJ and horse. I beat Dominique Wilkins in straight shooting horse. Really? And yeah, Neek's talked about it. I can really shoot. Honest to God. I'm not very good at basketball, but I can really shoot. And it's very surprising. So it takes somebody a couple letters to realize that I actually can shoot. So then it's already like they're 
nervous. I love this. Talk that talk, Brian. I just took Dante. I just took um, uh, Dominique. I basically just shot one-handed three-pointers, and he was just like a little bit fucked up. I, well, this is a fair story to tell. So he comes to set to do his cameo on the show, and we'd been bullshitting about playing horse. We get there. He's like, so we're going to play. And so the first game we play, I do one-handed take him to three-point land, and I beat him really quickly. And then he's like, again. And I say, I won't play you again. I have to make it that I've – and this is Chris Brickles, Jim. I go, I won't, I won't um, play again, dude. Like, I want out of here. I'm going to beat you. And, and, and Dominic's like, no, no, no. we got to fucking play again right now. And he's the <laughs> nicest guy in the world. Yeah. And, and I'm like, all right, dude. And, guys, he got so serious, and he went to half court. And he just made five half quarters in a row, like moving just slightly. He was just like, come on, let's go. Boom, boom. <laughs> five in a row, like center of the half court, one to the right, one to the left, one step up. Boom, 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 boom. And just nothing. He didn't he did want to lose. They don't like but losing. I won the first, but, but I won the first game fair and square. And then I, I got to say that I brought out in him the total game face, five in a row, fucking nailing half quarters. That's amazing. That's man. a win all around, I think. That's a win all around. You beat him once, and you made him get back into game form for another round. Yeah, it was everything. But you and I are going to play tennis, right? This is happening. We you, are, gotta beat, you have to beat Josh first because – You're better than I, him? Yeah, much. Okay, so I'll play Josh, and if I beat Josh – I mean, Josh, he's really good at tennis. I'm not much better. I just – I'm a – I always win, but yeah. he's 6'3 or 6'4. Got you. So let me play him, and then we'll see where I'm at and play you. And then we'll play. And then I'll let you play KD and horse. And if he wins, we write him in to be Wendy Rhodes' love interest next Let season. me say that KD <laughs> against me and horse, here are the terms. I know the terms. Uh, I start, he starts with S, and he has to shoot eight feet further than I have to shoot. That's easy. So wherever I shoot, his shot's eight feet back. Wherever he shoots, my shot's eight feet forward. All right, game on. And S, and then he and I can, we can, we can slate it. Done. And we'll play, you know what we'll do? We'll play Rhodes. We'll make it Rhodes. R-H-O-D-E-S. All right, guys, this was so much fun. Yes, Thanks I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. I'll speak to Thanks you soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye, guys.